my name's Adam Finn. I'm a children's doctor, a paediatrician. I work at the Children's Hospital in Bristol, and I'm also a professor at the University of Bristol and do a lot of uh, research as well. Um, uh, at the moment, I'm also responsible for uh, helping develop the recommendations for the new COVID vaccines, both nationally uh, for the UK government on a committee that advises the government about that, and also internationally for the World Health Organization uh, for the European region. Uh, so the, the countries right the way across Europe that are working out their plans for these vaccines at the moment. So what does that actually involve? What are you actually doing? So we're looking at the evidence on the epidemiology of COVID, who's getting it and who's getting sick. And now, of course, we're looking at the data coming through on the different vaccines that shows how well they work, what the uh, evidence is on safety, and then working out the best ways to use them. It's kind of a double-edged sword at the moment. The announcement of a vaccine, exciting, wonderful. But then I remember speaking to you at the beginning of the pandemic and you were saying it's highly likely it will take a minimum of a year and a half to, to get a vaccine. We just have to knuckle down and realise it will take a while. So instantly people are nervous about how it's happened so quickly. Can you explain to our listeners why and how it's come about so quickly? Well, there are several different reasons for that. Yeah. Um, the first is that um, because of the seriousness of the problem, a lot of resources have been put into this. So a lot of money, but also a lot of people have turned away from what they normally do and devoted themselves to working on this. So you've got a whole lot of people working in parallel at the same time. The second reason is that this particular kind of vaccine that's come through first is much quicker and easier to make than the kind of vaccines that we've used in the past. Uh, it's, it's made of some material called a messenger ribonucleic acid or RNA uh, and it's really much easier to make that kind of material than to make the more complicated proteins that we normally use in vaccines. So uh, essentially quantities were able to be made really quickly uh, using technologies that had already been developed so that studies could start. And then the third reason is that in order to get a study uh, that will show you that a vaccine is safe and effective you need two things. You need a lot of people in the study at the same time. Um, and there's been no shortage of people willing to come forward and take part in these experimental studies. Very altruistic and brave people, but there's been plenty of them. And secondly, you need cases of the disease you're trying to prevent to occur. Because if you don't get those cases, you can't find out whether the vaccine is working. And because there have been so many cases, in particular in countries where the studies are going on, it's been, able to, it's been possible to reach an answer much more quickly than you would with um, a, a more rare disease like uh, meningitis, for example, which is only occurring in very small numbers. So it's a combination of all of those things. And then the final step is that the regulatory authorities that normally uh, look at these uh, data in order to decide whether the vaccine genuinely is working and genuinely is safe, um, have essentially been instead of waiting for the end of the studies and then receiving an enormous lorry load of data to look through, they've been receiving the data all the way along through the studies for months now, so that they've been progressively looking at the data as it arrived. And that's meant that they could get to the end of the process much more quickly than would normally be the case. It would take months, even years sometimes for them to do that. 
go, I'm going back, I think it was to some kind of morning after or, or contraceptive pill years ago that caused side effects with women having children. What do we have to worry about how it's going to affect future generations? You know, because we don't know the side effects of it in 10 years time or five years time. Yeah, we, we don't. You're quite right. And whenever you take a medicine or, or a vaccine, for that matter, you're making what we call a risk benefit judgment. So there's no vaccine that's 100% effective. And there's no vaccine that is completely free of side effects. So what you're doing is making a judgment call on whether you're best served by taking the vaccine or by not taking it. So in the first instance with this vaccine, the people that are going to be being offered it are people who are at very high risk of getting seriously ill or dying of COVID, either because they're elderly or because they've got some other illness that makes them very risky or because they're working in an environment where they're being exposed to the virus day in, day out, and it's very hard to avoid exposure. So those kind of people, the risk-benefit judgment is fairly obvious. They've got a very serious risk they're facing from COVID. They've got the opportunity to get a vaccine that we know will work. Uh, And although the amount of information we've got on safety is limited at this point, it's confined to several tens of thousands of people who've received it, and uh, only a few months, maybe two or three months. Um, So far, there's no sign of a problem. So for them, I think it's a fairly straightforward choice. For everybody else who is at lower risk of getting really sick from COVID, well, they have the advantage that they're not actually gonna be offered the vaccine until it's been given to a very much larger number of people over a longer period of time. So by the time that young, healthy adults might be offered vaccine of one kind or another, next spring or summer, millions of people around the world will have received these vaccines um, and we will have much more time to have seen if any side effects emerge. So I think in the way it's not as big a problem as you might think because the people who might have a bit of trouble with the risk benefit judgment are gonna have a lot more information by the time they have to make the choice. And the people who are being offered vaccine now, well, it's an obvious choice anyway. I absolutely hear you. I we, we reached out to some of our listeners to ask if they had questions for you. And somebody responded, die from loneliness, die from the virus, die from the vaccine, which is the lowest risk? And, it, it you know, I know that's a little bit dramatic, but, you no, know, no. It, it, it's, yeah. it's Not everything. at all. Not at all. I think it's very well put. Uh, I think dying from the vaccine is something we really wouldn't expect to happen. Uh, you know, these vaccines uh, don't kill people. And uh, where side effects, serious side effects do emerge, and that has happened in the past with some vaccines, it's extremely rare um, and, and, and only an absolute rarity. So the risks of, of something bad happening, if any at all, are extremely small. Uh, I think, on the other hand, dying of the virus, particularly if you're elderly, or dying of loneliness are very real problems. And yeah. so anything we can do to try and uh, get get around those those risks are well worth doing. So there's a question here that I hope will make sense to you from Gary Trinder. And he'd like to ask, what are the dangers when altering RNA and when slash if RNA polymeric mo- molecular changes occur, will it, could it subsequently modify DNA? So we really don't think that can happen in human cells DNA is transcribed into RNA um, and that that then is uh, moved out into the out of the nucleus of the cell into the cytoplasm where it's transcribed into proteins. But we don't see the reverse process going on. We don't see 
RNA being transcribed backwards into DNA. And in fact, the only, uh, the only organisms that can do that are a, a relatively small group of viruses that have worked out a way to transfer, transfer RNA into DNA. So the RNA being injected in these vaccines uh, are in the wrong part of the cell, uh, and they're not really capable of being converted into DNA. We've got lots and lots of RNA in all of our cells all the time, because that's how cells work. Um, and, and we don't see this problem. So I don't really think that any of us feel that this is likely to be a problem. Okay, so that was more one of the sensible questions. And then we have, what are the anti-vaxxers? You know, there's quite an incredible um, phenomenon going on, I would say, at the moment in the country. One of the questions that I got was, do you really trust governments and the medical industrial complex? Big pharma is just big business. It's nothing to do with well-being or safety. Check out the book Virus Mania for an explanation of why the idea this vaccine should be taken it's plainly ridiculous and dangerous and this is actually the view of a scary amount of people isn't it have you got anything to sort of comment on these extreme points of view well they they certainly exist and there, yeah. there certainly are people who are very anxious and and really do think that there's uh, all sorts of uh, evil machinations going on Absolutely. i would say that they're very visible and audible but i don't think they're very numerous as a matter of fact i, I don't think that the numbers of people who really buy into those kind of ideas are, are very large numbers of people, certainly not in the United Kingdom. Potentially uh, more important in some other countries in Europe and, uh, and in the United States, or at least uh, you know, perhaps a, a large number of people who, who broadly don't, uh, don't trust uh, or don't like the idea of vaccines. But in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, uh, if, we, if we look at our vaccine programs, uh, people take their children to be immunized in majorities that politicians can only dream of. Where, you know, we achieve regularly for most of the programs uh, coverage rates of upwards of 95%. So, so most people trust the NHS uh, to do the right thing, to give them safe and effective vaccines for themselves and for their children. And I don't think that we're going to see anything different this time around. People are very clear about the size of this problem and they want to see a solution. Of course, there will be people who will uh, spread about, communicate and, and perhaps believe some of these slightly more far-fetched theories. But in reality, most people don't think that way and do trust the NHS. So I'm very optimistic, actually, that we will see demand for this vaccine massively exceed uh, supply initially and that in due course, others will see the effectiveness of the vaccines and the value of them. And the minority of people who will not want to be vaccinated, that's entirely up to them. There'll be no compulsion and they will probably benefit from everyone else being immunized ultimately anyway. So I think we have to accept that. And I think that's fair enough. It does surprise me how many people at the moment are making comments like this. One of the questions from Libby Laws was, what are the potential side effects and why are AI specialists being employed to deal with expected numbers of cases with side effects? Now, I asked her to provide some proof, but um, she hasn't got back to me yet. So I wanted to know where she got that from. H have you heard anything like that? Well, what I can tell you is that I have seen all of the data related to the vaccine that's coming through at the moment, because I sit on a committee where even before that information is made public, we are given sight of it. So I do know all the details about all of the 
side effects that have been reported in the 40,000 odd people so far who've been in the studies, both the, those that received the vaccine and those that received the placebo. Uh, and it's entirely true to say that quite a lot of people do get local reactions and pain at the injection site. It's quite common, as indeed for some of the other vaccines that we use routinely. And some people get fever and feel unwell for a period of up to 24, sometimes 36 hours. So it's what we would call a moderately reactogenic vaccine. It's a vaccine where quite a lot of people experience some, some pain and tenderness and, and local and generalized effects for a short period of time. But most people know that about vaccines and are you know, in their risk benefit judgment that I was talking about, they take that into account and they're prepared to accept the discomfort that comes with receiving a vaccine uh, initially and then over the next few hours. In terms of more serious side effects, they've been extremely uh, small numbers and they have all been reported in pretty much equal numbers in the two groups, the people who had the vaccine and the people who didn't. So, so these are events that occurred, illness events of one kind or another during the course of the study, but they don't seem to be linked to the vaccine. They just occurred because if you take 40,000 people, some of them will get ill during a period of six months while you're following them up. So at the moment, all the information we have suggests that local and temporary side effects are quite common and serious or long-term effects don't occur. Okay, so what about this, the comment that she made about AI specialists being employed? And this, I think, leads on to people, again, extremists saying about nanobots being used in the vaccines. Well, I, I think that is probably all sort of manufactured kind of stories. I mean... Uh, well, also the cost. Can you imagine what it would cost and what would be the use? This is what I was thinking about. What would be achieved from putting a nanobot into a vaccine that couldn't be achieved from somebody's phone or GPS? Do you know what I mean? Probably doesn't really merit discussion because I think people may think about vaccine companies and, and big business and so on. In the end, the truth is that they have to exist. They have to make money and they would soon go broke if they started producing things that were harmful. So it's the way we've chosen uh, in our societies to manufacture medicines. We all need them and depend upon them uh, in order to stay well. And the reason we have regulators, the reason we have scientists like me to carry out the studies, look after the patients, look at the data, make sure it's all going correctly into form is that we need to have an effective system of bringing effective and safe medicines to the market and to the patients that need them. Uh, and I think it's pretty self-evident that that's how it works. Of course, there are sometimes mishaps, but it's not because people are plotting to do uh, to do bad things at all. There's, there's no truth in that. And, it, and you're not employed by the pharmaceutical companies either, are you? Not at all. I'm employed by the University of Bristol, and that's yeah. my own source of income. So uh, although the pharmaceutical companies do need to provide the cost of conducting these studies. We can't have the taxpayer, you know, given that we're having it done by a profit-making company, they need to invest the money to get to the point that they can make that profit. But, but they don't pay my wages, absolutely not. So you touched on something then, the vaccine isn't compulsory. We've had headlines that the army are in Bristol, people slightly concerned about why that is. Are you aware? Can you explain why the army are in town? 
Yes, I think the reason is simply that if you're going to do something on top of everything else that you're doing at the moment that requires logistics and planning and putting operations into effect, the army are actually extremely effective at doing that kind of thing. I think they're simply there in order to enable and permit this to, to be done, given that you know we've still got to run the health service, we've still got to run the universities, we've still got to do all the other things that we're needing to do at breakneck speed at the moment with the pandemic in full flight. So I think there's nothing more to it than that, that these are a bunch of highly motivated, well-trained and well-disciplined individuals who will do what they're told when asked to in an appropriate way. Uh, and it's just a, a quick way of getting things done. Was it the army who built the Nightingale Hospital? Uh, I think the arms forces were involved in that. In a similar way, they're, they're now putting these vaccine centres together. And I think the Nightingale Hospitals may indeed end up being used for distribution of vaccine in due course as well. And you touched on there earlier about the, the, and if we could highlight the fact that it isn't compulsory to have the vaccine. In this country, there's absolutely no need for compulsion. As I said, people bring their children to be immunised, people to show up to be immunised themselves. Uh, it's something that people want to do. Uh, we have a highly effective, uh, highly cost-efficient immunisation system. Why would you compel people? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's, it's fine. We don't need to compel people to have vaccines because enough people want to have vaccines without being compelled to make the whole system work. And last question for you, Adam, because I will keep you all day otherwise, from one of our lovely listeners called Pam Bedard. And her question is, what, in your opinion, is more dangerous? A vaccine that's poised to win approval very soon from US and EU regulators as well as the UK's or people who campaign against vaccinations? <laughs> Well, the, ob the obvious answer is that if you go through the procedures correctly, you do the kind of studies that we've been doing carefully over the months in Bristol and many other cities in the country, collect all the information, uh, have it looked at independently by regulators, uh, and then uh, approved by a committee like the one I sit on, you can be pretty sure that it's been done carefully and properly. So I, I think people should, as long as we're effective in communicating and conversations like these and letting people know how the system works and why it's important that things are done this way I think people can take trust in in what we say. Sorry I'm going to sneak in one more the MP celebrating that this was a success of Britain and it couldn't have happened without Britain and, and it was outside of Brexit can you explain a little bit what all that was about? Well I certainly not what I've been saying that the people who work with me and support the work that I do come from countries all over the world the work that we've been doing is entirely dependent on international collaboration of people of all colours and uh, all backgrounds. And it's only by that kind of collaborative approach that anything can be achieved. I think to suggest that the UK is somehow unique or special or different uh, is completely wrong. We are well set up to do clinical trials. We have good systems and we can contribute to the international effort, which is what is needed to overcome this pandemic. And that's what it is. It's been a real international effort. And Adam, right from the start, you've supported um, a number of our presenters here on Ujima and given us some expert advice that's been so much needed and welcome. So, Professor Adam Finn, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you, as always.